0: Hello there and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. Today we are looking at chapter two in Ecclesiastes and this teaching is entitled Death and Life. In case you missed last week, I want to do a quick recap, specifically about the three big questions we ask whenever we start a new book of the Bible. The Three questions we asked last week was, when was Ecclesiastes written? who wrote Ecclesiastes, and what is the thesis of Ecclesiastes. So last week, we talked about how this book was written around 400 BCE. And we don't know who the author is, but there are two primary voices that are speaking throughout Ecclesiastes. The first, the voice of Kohelet, and the second is the voice of the authoress. And the thesis statement is found in verse 2 of chapter 1, when we read these words, Vanity of vanities, says Kohelet, vanity of vanities, all is vanity vanity is translated from the hebrew word hevel and hevel has a very negative connotation so some translations translate it as vanity like we just read and other translations translate hevel as meaningless and so the thesis is meaningless of meaningless all is meaningless and i even read one biblical scholar who said that a better translation is stupid So stupid of stupids, all is stupid. So the thesis statement of Ecclesiastes is Kohelet is trying to convince us that life is a stupid and meaningless exercise in vanity. Most Christians I know hear that thesis statement and want to argue with that thesis statement right off the bat, but a good English teacher would hear Kohelet's argument, his main thesis, And say something like this, interesting thesis, Kohelet, now you need to support your argument. So we find Kohelet defending his thesis throughout every chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. But today we're going to focus specifically on chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 17 as Kohelet seeks to support his thesis that life is a stupid and meaningless exercise in vanity. So let's read together Ecclesiastes chapter two. Kohelet writes, I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But again, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my mind how to cheer my body with wine. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had gone before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and delights of the flesh and many concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had spent in doing it. And again, all was vanity and a chasing after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So we're going to pause here at the end of verse 11 and do a quick recap. Here, Kohelet is telling us that he is wise, he is rich, he's drank a lot of wine, he's had a lot of sex, he has power, he's built things, he's living in a garden, everything is as good as everyone told him life could be, and he's found it to be vanity. He continues in verse 12 by writing these words. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the one do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise have eyes in their head, but fools walk in darkness. Yet I perceive that the same fate befalls all of them. Then I said to myself, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said to myself that this also is vanity. For there is no enduring remembrance of the wise or of fools, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How can the wise die just like fools? So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a chasing After the wind. So, despite amassing all of these pleasures and wealth and buildings and power, Kohelet has this sense that, well, maybe if I gain in wisdom, if I grow in my knowledge, then that will somehow set me apart. But then he writes that off in the end of this passage by saying, How can the wise die just like fools? Who cares if you're smart or if you're dumb? We're all going to die anyways. And this thought weighs heavy on Kohelet. After all, no matter how much power or wealth he amasses, Cohelet will die one day just like a commoner. He cannot purchase immortality. Cohelet picks up on this theme throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 3, he writes, for the fate of humans and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and humans have no advantage over the animals. For all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knows whether the human spirit goes upwards and the spirit of animals goes downward to earth. He picks it up again in chapter four. He writes, And I thought the dead who have already died more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. In chapter five, he writes, As they came from their mother's womb, so they shall go again. And naked as they came, they shall take nothing for their toil, which they may carry away with their hands. Kohelet tells us, you came into this world naked and you will die naked. That is the way things are. And in chapter 9, Kohelet writes these words, the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, and even the memory of them is lost. So in Jerusalem in 400 BCE, we hear this voice of Kohelet saying to the world that life is a stupid and meaningless exercise in vanity. And if you want to know why Kohelet believes this to be true and ask him to support his thesis, he would respond by saying, because no matter what we do, we're all going to die. The universal human condition of death is why Kohelet is convinced that life is meaningless. The fact that everyone will die is the main support structure Underneath the thesis of Cohelet's writing. Now Cohelet was not alone in these thoughts in this time frame. About a hundred years later in Athens there was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. And Epicurus presented something that was a paradox that would later become known as the Epicurean paradox. Now, this paradox is stated in three steps, and they all build on each other. The first step is this. If an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God exists, then there should not be evil. So the main premise of the Epicurean paradox is this idea that if God can oversee all, then there shouldn't be any evil in the world whatsoever. Because God has a desire, being good, to end all evil, and God is powerful enough to end all evil. So Epicurus begins off this paradox by saying, if an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God exists, then there should not be evil. Which brings us to the second step. There is evil in the world. Which then brings us to the third step. Therefore, an all-powerful, all-loving, and all-knowing God does not exist. And so you have this voice crying out, from Athens in 300 BCE, I find the whole proposition of God being good to be problematic. And a hundred years earlier, if Kohelet could hear Epicurus speaking, he would respond by saying, Right? Kohela would add, I don't see how God can be good when everyone dies in the end. That seems like a pretty bad God to me. So These writers are writing 100 years apart from each other, and it's almost like we can sense there's this collective waking up of the human consciousness in Western civilization at this point, right? There's this sense that there is too much pain, too much suffering, too much death for God to be all that people have said God is. And Kohelet and Epicurus are two very different people living in two very different worlds, and yet... There is this same question that arises in both of their experiences and their testimony is essentially this. God cannot be good given the state of this world. Here's the point where Christians usually charge in and say, hang on a minute, Kohelet and Epicurus. I believe in an all-powerful, all-loving and all-knowing God and I live in this world and I don't think that those beliefs are mutually exclusive. And so they often posit or put forward one of the following five arguments. The first argument is that this earth is caught in the middle of spiritual warfare. There is a God in heaven and a devil down below and we are caught right in the battlefield and all of the suffering and pain and death that we experience is collateral damage. The second objection to Kohela and Epicurus' claims would be that Christians say you have to talk about heaven. And yes, while there is suffering and evil in this world, the next world will not have that, and therefore there will be no paradox of evil coexisting with an all-powerful, all-loving God. The third objection is that Christians will say, well, we can avoid death if we just believe more. Now, this is a belief from the more conservative faction of Christianity, but there's this sense that if we could somehow believe correctly or get everybody on the same page, or there was a massive global revival, that God would look at the earth and see it as all of a sudden being worthy to be saved and would intervene and put an end to evil. And so while there's evil in the world, it's ultimately our own fault because we don't believe in God enough. The fourth objection to Kohelet and Epicurus' arguments is that Christians will say that God works for the good of those who love God. And they'll say, yes, we're suffering from evil right now. I'm suffering from pain right now. But I, I just have, I have no doubt that God will make this good in the end and will somehow balance this out. Which brings us to the fifth and last argument. Christians will say, well, Kohela and Epicurus, let me tell you, God won't give any Christian more than they can bear. Now, this is a really strange misunderstanding of a verse in 1 Corinthians, which is talking about temptation. Um, But Christians have taken this and have said, oh, no, 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 while there is evil and there's pain and there's suffering, it will never be beyond anything the human being can bear. And so these five different objections or arguments or counterpoints to Kohelet and Epicurus are often brought forward. And when I hear them, and I've heard all of them multiple times, I cannot help but think of the literary device or the metaphor of an ivory tower. The New Oxford American Dictionary defines ivory tower as a state of privileged seclusion or separation from the facts and practicalities of the real world. So when Christians make these arguments, what they so often remind me of is an ivory tower and this idea that they ascend the ivory tower away from the facts and the heartache of the real world And they say, let's debate whether God is good from up here. But every now and then, there are these events that break through and demand that we leave the ivory tower and live in the real world as we talk about death and life and good and evil. One of those moments happened just a few weeks ago on March 2, 2019 when I invited my friend Tyler Fullerton from college to come and speak at Paradox. Now, Tyler grew up in the church, but he eventually left the church and is now a professed atheist. And on March 2, I asked him the question in my interview of him and I said, Tyler, tell me why you can't believe in God. And Tyler responded with these words. He said, I've had a very bad year. My mom had cancer and she died. It was incredibly rough. He goes on to say, I remember crushing up opium to give in a syringe to her every hour so that she could slowly die, but not as painfully. And Craig, you have to think, what would this God thing be? Is God trying to make me and my mom suffer? I mean, there's a million ways to kill a person. And what my mom went through was one of the worst. Now, very few people who are listening to this podcast have actually met Tyler. And I'm gonna guess that very few, if any, who are listening to this were fortunate enough to meet his mother, Carol, while she was alive. I first met Carol at our graduation ceremony and just said hi real quick, and she was happy to meet me and I was happy to meet her. Uh, But then I got to spend a weekend with her in 2016, when Tyler got married to his wife, Eileen, and she was there, Uh, Tyler's dad was there, and all of Tyler's family was there as well. At the rehearsal dinner, Carol made sure that she found me and told me how much she loved the podcast that uh, Tyler and I had made where we talked about faith and doubt and Christianity and agnosticism. And how much she just appreciated it. And it became very apparent that she had listened to just about every episode because she loved her son so much. And I got to tag along for the ride, <laughs> right? Not only that, but on the actual wedding day, it was a July four wedding. I remember that Carol was one of those people who wanted to make sure that everybody got involved and was having a good time and enjoyed the dancing at the wedding. And while there were a lot of people that loved dancing there, I don't think that anyone loved dancing as much as my two-year-old daughter, Maya. And she was out there dancing on the floor, just having a great time. And Carol went up and grabbed her hand and danced with her for a little bit for a song. And I still have a video clip of it. And I played it last week in Paradox. And it means so much to me. So we go back to the stage, and on the stage, I'm asking Tyler why he can't believe in God, and he talks about the agonizing death that his mother faced, and he said, "I can't believe that God can be good with the kind of pain that my mom went through." And I hear this, and there, you know, I start crying. I mean, Tyler has got you know tears brimming up in his eyes as I'm interviewing him in a church. Um, I can hear other people start to sniffle in the congregation. Tyler's story really raises a question for anyone who believes in a good God. Is God good in this story? Well, the answer is obviously no. But we can't vocalize that word no, because if we do, then it will be viewed as a betrayal of the faith. After all, in the church's mind, the faithful will always talk about the goodness of God. So if there's a story where God doesn't appear to be good, then we have to rationalize or justify it. We have to do anything that we can to avoid saying that God isn't good in this story. Because if God isn't good in this story, then that tells us that God isn't good all of the time. And if God isn't good all of the time, then is God worth worshiping at all? Now, it's here that people may attempt to return to the ivory tower, They may try their best to stand up to Tyler and say, hey, I know that you're suffering right now. I know you've got tears in your eyes, but listen, there is this war going on between good and evil and we're collateral damage. I mean, give me a break. It doesn't work, does it? It comes across as being just calloused and cruel rather than being willing to suffer alongside someone who is hurting. I think any conversation about suffering and the goodness of God that is done without tears in our eyes is a wasted conversation. Because the fact is we don't live in ivory towers, do we? No. We live here, on this earth, in this time. I would like to tell you what that means for me. When I say I live here, here is somewhere between a bass and a snare drum between violins and cellos and between bass and electric guitar from bible camp to the beatles to cold play to worship music on a weekly basis being able to create by plugging in and letting it fly is one of the great joys in my life not only that but back in 2005 my friend carl got engaged This may not be a big deal to you, but it was a big deal to me because he was the first of our friends to be engaged. And when this happened, it sent this kind of awareness that went through our friend group. And we said, we have to do something about this. And so as a response, me and my closest friends went on a backpacking trip to Glacier National Park. And this trip was one of the most beautiful moments of my life because uh, it marked the end of a good era. Now, the next era was even better, but we had to remember and celebrate that era because we knew that things would be different from that moment forward. A few years after that trip, I fell in love with Kimmy, the most beautiful woman on the planet. It is a scientific fact. And a few years after we were married, we traveled the world together. First, we went to Japan for two weeks. And then about a year later, we got to go to Patagonia, just the two of us. And when people ask me to this day, if you could go back and relive any two-week period of your life, what would it be? I say, oh, I'd relive the trip to Patagonia or Japan because I have never been happier than when I was traveling with the woman I so madly love. Then in 2013, we welcomed our daughter, Maya, into the world. And in 2016, we welcomed my son, Bodhi. Now, one thing that changed for me dramatically was before these kids, I did not like Halloween at all, and now I am obsessed with Halloween. It takes several candy bribes, but eventually I can get my kids into a costume. And last year, my son was Batman, the year before, he was Donatello the Ninja Turtle. My daughter has dressed up as a pumpkin, as Snow White, and as Wonder Woman. And I will tell you, I love every picture of them in costume. I love taking my kids to Disneyland. I love watching my kids sing in church. I love watching how my kids have developed passions at a very young age. My daughter is in ballet with her cousin, Lucy, and she loves every second of it. My son loves going to the beach and he loves throwing sand and rocks and shells into the water for hours and whether we're at the beach for four minutes or four hours, my son is still mad whenever we have to go because it's just not enough time. I love Thanksgiving. I love Christmas. I love all of these memories from bachelor trips to music, to getting married, to having kids, to traveling the world. I love it all. And there's so many beautiful and happy memories in my life that I am overwhelmed with gratitude. However, that is not the whole story. Because shouldered up next to these intense moments of beauty, are unbearable moments of sadness. When I was rejected, when I was removed from a job that I loved, when I was told that I was hurting people rather than helping them. Moments like this past Friday, where a gunman opened fire at two different mosques and live streamed the whole thing. And he did this all under a white nationalist agenda where he believed he somehow was superior and owned the land more than his Muslim brothers and sisters. I think about another moment that happened a few years ago. I was in a hospital's chaplaincy program um, as part of requirements for ordination. And hospital chaplains are on call because obviously there are tragedies that happen in the evening and overnight in the hospital. And on the first night I took overnight call, um, I was paged, um, to labor and delivery. And when I arrived at the hospital, the nurse filled me in as to what was happening. She just said, Hey, um, a mom just gave birth to a baby. She was only 22 weeks pregnant. And then she looked at me and she said, the baby's not doing well. And the mom is trying to make the decision of whether or not to keep this baby on life support. So I walk into this room. Here is this young grieving woman who has just given birth. A doctor is trying to explain to her the quality of life that lies before this baby and the challenges that this baby will face. And next to this doctor is this tiny, tiny little baby who, I mean, it's just, it's hard to believe it's even alive. I mean, it's hooked up to every machine and um, it's a miracle that they can keep this baby's heart beating um, you know, when it's born so early. And so the doctor is explaining what this baby's life will be like. And she's living in the middle of all this, trying to figure out whether or not to keep the baby alive. Um, (laughs) I mean, as I tell this story, I just, I'm overwhelmed. Um, trying to think of what that must be like. And so, after several agonizing hours, uh, the mother decided it was best for the baby not to live. (laughs) They, oh man. And they made the decision to take the baby off life support. Um, And I will tell you that I can still hear this mother's scream if she's left the room. Yeah. In this same life, I had a very dear friend, Uh, his name was Chase Boyd. And I got to know Chase because I was his youth pastor while he was in high school. And Chase suffered from muscular dystrophy and kept getting worse as he kept getting older. When Chase was 19 years old, he went into the hospital and a few days later, my daughter was born. And I remember I met my daughter for the first time And a few hours later, I saw Chase in the hospital for the last time. And I got to tell you, like, Chase was a really big Lakers fan. And by extension, he really liked Kobe Bryant. And by extension, he really didn't like LeBron James. I got to tell you, I I think about Chase so much now seeing LeBron James in a Lakers uniform because I would love to know what he thought about all of this. (laughs) I I can imagine that he would eventually grow to love LeBron, but it would take a few games into this uh, tenureship before he'd be okay with it. And I tell you this story because I miss him. It's it's unfair that he has to die at the age of 19. In this same life, I got to go skiing with my friends a couple of years ago, and uh, one of my friends, I, I just I just built like this really special bond with his daughter his daughter was five at the time and we'd like play games and we could make each other laugh. And she would listen to my stories, which most people weren't doing back then. <laughs> um, and we would draw pictures together and, uh, you know, just like, it's just one of those hard to describe kind of special bonds. Um, but a few months after we were spending time together, she turned six and then she got on a plane and on March 22, 2009, that plane crashed and um, her name her name was Haley and if that plane didn't crash then Haley would be 16 years old right now and you may not be able to identify with any of these stories you may, I don't know but at some point all of us have had to say goodbye to someone that we love and When we talk about where we live, we don't live in ivory towers. We live here between these intensely beautiful moments and these intensely frightening moments, don't we? We live between happiness and sadness, joy and despair, death and life. And every one of us carries these stories around as we are both inspiring and wounded. And when I think of the ivory tower, the ivory tower has very little bearing on what actually matters, doesn't it? Because we don't live in ivory towers, we live here. And there is a giant difference between intellectual atheism and a felt atheism. There's a big difference between an intellectual absence of God and a felt absence of God. And if you asked me, well, where was God in those moments when you're with chase or when you say goodbye to Haley, or when that mom was deciding whether or not to keep the baby on life support? I respond to you by saying, I have no idea there is an overwhelming sense in each of these moments that God withdrew God's self. That God wasn't there. And all that was left was this suffering that was overwhelming. Which raises the question, what on earth do we do when we encounter debilitating suffering? Because the church is really good at highlighting and acknowledging when God is good, right? Uh, The church will do things like praise reports. The church will invite people to share testimonials. The church will do things like, what did you pray for? And then you share what you prayed for. And they say, and what did God give you? And you share what God gave you. And they say, praise be to God. We sing praise songs. We say things like, God is good all the time. We say those words over and over again when the church, but when something like any of those stories happen, the church responds by saying, eh. and the church isn't really sure what to do when we encounter the debilitating suffering that so many of us live with. So what should the church be doing when we encounter debilitating suffering? Well, in my opinion, we should be learning how to Lament. Now, lament is a strange word, and if you look it up in the dictionary, the dictionary defines this word as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. I do not like this definition, because when I read about people actually lamenting, something else comes up entirely. So I'd like for us to redefine lament because it will tell us what we need to learn and what we need to embrace when we encounter this debilitating suffering. And to redefine lament, I want to look at seven different laments within the Hebrew Bible because they all share something different about what it means to lament. The first lament comes from Jacob in the book of Genesis. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and Jacob has 12 sons. Now, we all know that parents aren't supposed to have favorite kids, but we all do. We just never admit it out loud. Jacob admitted his favorite kid out loud. And that was his son, Joseph. A few chapters later, the word returns to Jacob that his son, Joseph, has been killed by a wild animal. Jacob falls to the ground on hearing about his son's death. He tears his clothes to show others that he is mourning. People then rush to comfort him and Jacob responds by saying, no, do not comfort me for I will go to my grave mourning my son. The second lament is found in the book of Ruth. A woman named Naomi falls in love and is married. She has two sons, but then a drought arrives in her home country, and she is forced to live as a refugee in the nation of Moab. While she is living in Moab, her sons grow up, and they both marry Moabite wives, but both of them struggle with fertility issues. After 10 years of fertility issues, the unthinkable happens. Naomi's husband dies, and she says goodbye to the man that she loves. To make matters much worse, her first son unexpectedly dies, and her other son shortly after that dies as well. Naomi, living as a refugee, buries her husband and her two sons, and she is living with her two daughters-in-law, who are Moabite women. Naomi then receives word that the drought has ended back home, so she begins to return home. And on the way home, her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, refer to her as Naomi. They call out Naomi, and she turns to them and responds by saying, Call me Mara, which is Hebrew for bitter. She goes on to say, For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The third lament is found in the book of Job. In this story, Job watches 10 of his children die. He loses all of his wealth and he's afflicted with terrible sickness. His friends show up and say, Job, this is all your fault. Admit before God that you are to blame for all this and God will heal you. Job refuses to do that and in response comes back with a lament In Job chapter 23, he says, If I go forward, God is not there. Or backward, I cannot perceive God. On the left, God hides, and I cannot behold him. I turn to the right, but I cannot see him. The fourth lament is found in the Psalms. Now, most people assume that the Psalms are happy praise songs about God because that's what we sing so often in church. But over two-thirds of the psalms are actually laments. One of my favorite laments in the psalms is chapter 44 when the psalmist writes, Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? The fifth lament is found in the book of Lamentations, which is an entire book of lamentations laments. And there is one point where a female character in this story, in the middle of lamentations, says these words. She says, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. From there, we go to the sixth lament, which is the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk begins his lament by saying these words in verse 2 of chapter 1, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Which brings us to the seventh lament, which is found in the book of Ecclesiastes, and are the words of Kohelet. And he says, Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity. When you look at these seven laments and you hear that the definition of a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow, while that is technically true, it is so much more than that, isn't it? Because a lament from Jacob to Naomi to Job to the psalmist to Lamentations to Habakkuk to Kohelet, when they lament, it's about losing something that they were promised was actually there. In other words, I think a lament is a testimony about the absence of God. Now, the thought of giving a testimony about the absence of God may feel like a betrayal of the faith to you. But look at how much laments are woven into the structure of the Hebrew Bible. We find them happening again and again and again, where these heroes of the faith are talking about how God isn't there, how God wasn't there for them. And in this same book, in the same Bible, there are also these other stories where biblical heroes are talking and giving testimonies about how God is present with them and how God was there for them and singing God's praises. And so much like life, there are these moments where people are testifying to God's absence sitting right next to people testifying to God's presence. So the ability to lament or to testify about the absence of God is not a betrayal of faith. Rather, the ability to lament is foundational to faith. Christians must be good at testifying both to God's presence and absence. Now, someone may look at this and say, well, that was back in the Hebrew Bible. We have the New Testament. Things have changed. God is now good all the time because the wrath of God was satisfied to which I would point to the central icon of all of the Christian faith, the cross. And there on the cross, with his very last breath, according to Mark's gospel, Jesus Christ laments. He testifies to the absence of God by saying these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus died. My brothers and sisters, when we talk about suffering and Epicurean paradoxes and the teachings of Kohelet and just the overwhelming amount of death in this planet, I think we need to remember a few things. The first thing is this we don't live in ivory towers. So let's stop arguing there. If we're ever having a discussion about suffering and there's not tears in our eyes, then what are we doing with our time? The second thing we can learn is that there is a difference between intellectual absence of God and a felt absence of God. And Christians should not argue against people who feel the absence of God. And lastly, we must become a people who testify to both the presence and the absence of God. Because our ability to testify to the absence of God is foundational to our faith. My brothers and sisters, may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.